have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 3. Thankful to be back, and I'm thankful for the men who were able to speak and share God's word while I was gone. I was able to watch from home, and so it just reminds me that there's probably a group of people who is not able to be present today that's um, being careful or for our sake quarantining at home, and so we thank you for joining us online, or if you're over in the Commons building watching there, uh, thank you for being with us this morning. We, we appreciate that you're here personally. We, we appreciate that you are um, deliberate about hearing the Word of God and that you're joining with us today, especially on this day when we focus our attention on what God says about the family. We're going to look in Colossians chapter 3, and um, let, me just, let me just do the hand-raising thing for a moment. How many of you still have children at home, and you're, like, they, they are probably unsaved, because we have a two-year-old who is clearly unsaved, we have a five-year-old who I believe is unsaved, and going up from there, we get more certain that they've trusted Christ. But how many of you still have children at home that, that you're hoping come to Christ, whether they're six months old or six years old or 16 and still need to trust Christ? How many of you are here? Okay. How many of you have teenagers and you're just hoping they don't train wreck before they get out of your home? How many of you are there? I'm there too. I'm also worried about the car wreck. She's 15 and a half, and that's terrifying. Um, raising children is, it causes fear, anxiety, and burden, doesn't it? It also causes great joy and uh, goodness and grace in the home to have children there. And there are two problems with raising children in the home. Parents and kids. Right? Like half of the battle is you. The other half of the battle is them. So we come to Colossians 3, and I want to just run through like a kind of 20,000 foot overview really quickly just to lay the foundation for why I think this text is so valuable for us as we consider. And let me just broaden it up beyond family. If there are two problems in the home, children and you, even if you're single, you still have that problem. You're there. Right, like It doesn't matter if you have kids or not. There is a battle in our homes for goodness, even if we're the only human being alive in the home. So we come to chapter 3. Actually, just, just survey quickly through, through verses 5 uh, down through verse 23. He is calling us to godly character in verse 5 through 15. He's, and so I'm just going to roll through the lists here. He says, don't do sexual immorality, impurity, um, being filled with passions, get rid of evil desire, get rid of covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 8, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. So he's, he has this like list of don't do this, the same list you're going to teach your five-year-old. Where'd you learn that word? You don't say that word ever again, son. We're going to teach our children not to have obscene talk or, or lying or anger to one another. You're going to train them this way, right? And then what do you teach them? Verse 11. Boy, this is so, I mean, just the timelessness of Scripture is just unmatched. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Prejudice and racism are so contrary to Christ. Our world is still to learn that lesson. Come down to verse 12, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bear with one another, forgive one another, put on love, verse 14. Verse 15, be at peace, be thankful. I mean, as a parent, how many times have you told your child to say thank you? This is just the essence of a Christian character. This is what, what we call our children to be. This is what we strive to be. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on in the next verses calling us to a passionate worship that is deeply theological. Look what he says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Music is not simply to be felt. It is to be deeply intellectual and theologically accurate to who Christ is. So how do we train our children to say things like thank you, to not cuss, to not lie? How do we teach our children to, to pursue what is good, to worship God in truth and passion? Continue on now. Verse 18. Wives, 
submit your husbands. Husbands, verse 19, love your wives. Verse 20, children, obey your parents. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children. So he starts with character, then he goes to worship. Now he's looking at the home. In fact, he says in verse 22, bond servants, I think at least in parallel we could say employees, obey your bosses. Why? Because you want to please the Lord. So we go from personal character, church worship, home holiness, and finally integrity in the workplace. And all of this, isn't that what you're trying to teach your children? Isn't this what you want your home life to be like? Isn't this what you want personally? And all of this is anchored to verses 1 through 4. So if you want to raise a son who's going to be a great dad and a sweet husband, you've got to get a hold of verses 1 through 4. If you want your children to join you in deep and passionate worship around the focus of the Son of God, you've got to get 1 through 4. If you want to teach your children the right reason for saying thank you, you've got to understand the beginning of the chapter. So while the first four verses never use the word home or husband or child, it is the anchor that leads him in verses 18 through 21 to, to, to teach you about the home. In fact, when you look at the home, wives, you treat your husbands this way because it's fitting in the Lord. Children, you obey in everything because it pleases the Lord. We, we, we respond in the workplace the way we do with working hard and being people of integrity because we know that the real person who we follow is the Lord, who, no matter who our boss is. So we come to verses 1 through 4. We've got to figure out this powerhouse section so that we can actually live up to the home, the worship, the character, and the environment in our workplace that God expects. So look with me down to verses 1 through 4. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As we look at this uh, text, I, I'm going to outline it by focusing on the person of our God, then by focusing on the position of our Savior. Follow that, we're going to look at the participation we have with Christ, and then finally, how that leads us to uh, the pursuit of what is heavenly, or the passion for those heavenly things. So let's just start with this thought that our God is a personal God. I think at times we can make our God somewhat impersonal. Um, I think it was Bette Midler that said something like, God is watching us from a distance. And the idea that God is somehow removed, that he's watching us, but he's not personally involved, that he's not connected to us, that he's not engaged in our life, is absolutely contrary to Scripture. And in fact, I think any godly home and godly person has a personal awareness of the presence of God. When you go to chapter 1, the apostle has spent time calling and praying for the believers in Colossae. And I think we ought to be thinking this way too, to personally know God, that they would be increasing in knowledge. Knowledge is not just like intellect. It's relationship. And Jesus throughout the Bible that way, for instance, um, the, the closeness of a husband and wife is described as knowing not because you know who your wife is, of course you know who she is, but because you relate to her in sweetness and relationship and affection. So when it calls for us to know God, it's calling for us to relate to him as a person, that we would grow in the depth of that relationship, not just in our understanding of who he is, but in how we connect to him. Verse 12 then says, we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us in chapter 1. And again, the point being that when we come to verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, it says, If you then be raised with Christ, things, uh, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that we are to recognize that God, like this may be really deep here, the idea of having a right hand is he is exercising rule 
mean, not literally, he has a right hand. And that's not the point. The point is that God's throne in heaven is actively administrating his rulership over this world, and he is personally relating to his people. In fact, when you come down to the uh, end of verse 3, look at it with me. It says that your life is hidden with Christ, what? In God. The point of of verse 3 particularly is that God is the one who secures us and anchors us to Jesus Christ. That without God, you have no relationship to Jesus Christ and no salvation in him. So when we come to a text like this, we can read it and fly by the absolute world-transforming claim that there is a God seated on his throne who governs this world and by whom alone we can be saved and who alone anchors us to Jesus Christ. I want to move on, and we're going to, we're going to flex back to this idea that God personally relates to us a couple different times in this text. But if we look in the, in, the, in the whole passage, there's a focus on the position of Christ. And, and by that, I actually mean location and activity. Look at look verse 3, and just, or excuse me, in, in verse 1, and, and begin thinking about location. If you then be raised with Christ... Seek those things that are above where. That's a location word. Where Christ is seated. Come down to verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things in the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You have at least three statements that show us, and I'll say position, of Christ. We have in verse 3 that he has died. But that's in verse 1 because he's what? Raised. So he actually starts backwards, doesn't he? He starts on chapter 2 of Christ's life and then goes to chapter 1. He starts with a resurrection. If you have resurrected with Christ, leads us to know what about him? In order to be resurrected, you have to have already died. So, so he's, he's showing us that Christ, having died, is raised. Not only that, of course not only has he died, but having died, then been raised, where is Christ now? Where is he at? He's at the right hand of God in heaven. So twice he says, you know, heavenlies, or think about what's above, think about those things that are not of this earth, because Christ is in a location. Where is Christ at right now? He's at the right hand of God. There are a couple passages in Scripture that I think give insight to the, to the full meaning. And he just says at the right hand of God and moves on. And I think he assumes we get it. First Peter speaks of the right hand of God. Here's what it says in First Peter 3. He says that Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, the point would be this, that Jesus Christ, having, having died and been raised again, ascends and sits at the right hand of God and rules over all powers. It's a position of absolute authority. Jesus Christ rules over everything. There is not one rogue molecule in the ether of space somewhere that lifts its fist to God and says, I will not obey. I stand here and will finish this sermon only by the permission of Jesus Christ who rules over everything. There is not a grasshopper in Africa jumping without the permission of Jesus Christ. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, none of them become president without the permission of Jesus Christ. And no one owns a quickie mart, or manages it without the permission of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king over all. From the most powerful angel or demon to the weakest insect in this world, to the most random act of goodness, to the most vile, disgusting sin ever committed, Jesus Christ declares, I am king. Boy, that gives us hope, doesn't it? Okay, so, so I, I want to just hit pause on the text and just ask you, do you teach this to your children? 
do you teach this to your children? So maybe a way that we can get this wrong applicationally is we make obedience about us. Have you ever done this, parent? Your child disobeys for the umpteenth time that day, and up to that point, they've received patience, and at that point, patience has ended, and they receive the wrath of dad because dad is angry. Now, why is dad angry? Because you ticked him off and bothered him or broken his stuff or dishonored him. What should energize parental discipline, correction, rebuke, and instruction is a desire for this child to see that Jesus is the center of the universe, not mom and dad. And so we can often train our children to please us and teach them that we are king of our castle. Jesus is the only king that matters. And so in our homes, we commit to raising them to know, submit, and rest in the kingship of Christ. And as adults, don't you need to hear that? Man, our world is chaos this year. And Jesus Christ is not asleep. He has not failed. Our church has seen tragedies this last year, and over all of them, Christ is king, and he's good. You want to see a picture of the goodness in Romans 8. Here's the picture of Christ at the right hand of God. Here's what it says. Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised and who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here's the picture. Our Lord Jesus is sitting enthroned in heaven, governing all of creation, which is just magnificent in terms of pure intellectual power. When I say things like there's not one rogue molecule in the ether of the universe of space that he does not declare I am king over, and we're like, yeah. Can you imagine the information that he holds instantaneously in his understanding of the universe to know about that rogue molecule that is not a rogue, that he owns and manages? And yet, as he sits governing the universe, he intercedes and pleads and speaks to the Father for your sake. So while he manages the universe, he expresses love for his people. Think personal here. As he pleads on your behalf, to his father, whom he is next to in heaven. And when you have the king of the universe who died for you, who pleads for you, who never tires of interceding for you and praying for you to his father, isn't there great hope that that sweet union between father and son anchors you to an unbreakable innocency. No one can condemn you. No one can judge you as worthy of hell because Christ has died for his people. Man, what hope we have. An unshakable, unbreakable unity to God's grace because the king pleads to his father for you. If I could have anyone go to bat for my kid, his name would be Jesus. So we lead and plead and pray for our children to come to Christ. That he might not only be king, but the priest who intercedes forever. Can you see the personal relationship of the Father and the Son in sweetness and goodness, securing for you redemption forever? But that's not the only position. The, the final one mentioned in verse 4 is when Christ, 
who is your life appears, then what? Then we appear with him in glory. But notice that Christ, having been raised, because he died, that's not where it ends. He's not just sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father. There is going to be a moment when he appears in glory. There's like four movements here. There's death, there's resurrection, there's enthronement in heaven, and then there's an appearance in unabashed, full display of glory. Jesus is coming, and he will show us who he is. And here's the terrifying danger. We can raise up our children, and as, as, as humans with only eyes to see what is earthly, all of us can only know Jesus now by eyes of faith. Our children can't see Jesus. They cannot experience the presence of Christ physically because he's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus is real. He is the king. He's truly interceding. Well, how does your child know the unseeable reality of Christ? Through the testimony and the witness of parents. Through the preaching and teaching Praying and loving of the church family around those children, calling them to know and see by faith Christ is real and true. When you look in this passage, faith becomes sight. Jesus will appear. He's going to appear not just to show himself, but to show himself in glory. I have no way of capturing in my imagination, let alone expressing to you the absolute glory of Christ. I know that when John, the beloved disciple who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and loved Jesus and knew him personally, sees him, he falls on his face as though dead because he sees the glory of Christ. I don't know how glorious someone has to be for a grown man to drop as dead in fear and awe. But I think it's better than just bright light. That that bright light preaches with a weight that crushes the pride, the self-sufficiency, the strength of who we are and brings us to our knees. You can think you're big, and when you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, you get perspective. When you look at the ocean, you think about swimming across it, you get perspective. And all of a sudden, your bigness isn't so big. You may think you're a great swimmer, but if you see a shark next to you, you know what good swimming looks like, and you're not it. Perspective is gained when you see something bigger or better or different that, that makes you adjust your perception. Every superstar athlete in junior high, in little tiny parochial schools across the country, graduate to high school and then college, and at some point they wake up and say, I'm not that good anymore. Perspective. When you see Christ, you will know goodness and power and righteousness. And he is going to appear. And everyone will see him. But this, this is not simply meant to lead us to worship Christ reflectively. But he's showing us who Christ is so that we would see something about ourselves. So we see God and Christ personally relating in the work of redemption and intercession and kingship. We recognize that the position of Christ is coming to purpose in this passage. Look with me in verse 1. If you then have been raised, finish it. What? With him, with Christ. The position of Christ matters because now he's connecting us to the position of Christ. Look down with me in verse 3. For if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Come to verse 4 then. When Christ appears, you also will appear. Do you see a relationship there? Where Christ is, you are. Okay, so where are you at today? 
Where's your position? This is not a trick question, but the passage tells you a surprising truth. Did you catch it? Okay, so, so here's, here's where this passage is leading us. If you've been raised with Christ, now the assumption is if you're a Christian, you have been, but it's, but it's asking you to evaluate, have you actually been raised with Christ? If you're a Christian, you have been raised with Christ, which means if you're resurrected with Christ, what happened before? You have died, three, or you have died with him. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So if you are raised with Christ, then you've already died with him. Where's he getting this from? Go back to chapter 2 with me. One of the sweet realities of salvation that must be communicated because the gospel without it is not the gospel is that the believer doesn't simply stand apart from salvation but experiences it. Salvation is not something that we know about. It is something we experience. We are saved. When you come to two, he explains theologically this unity we have with Christ. Look with me in verse two, or excuse me, chapter two, verse 12. I'm going to go back to verse 11, so forgive me there for saying verse 12, just simply because it theologically explains it a little bit. It says, in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I, I know there's, there's a lot of, of terminology there that may be unfamiliar, but his point is, God has removed our sin natures, corrupting enslavement. And he used the example of circumcision as a removal concept. And he explains then by anchoring it to the, the concept of baptism, then in verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism. So notice what he says. He's like, this, this removal happened, and he relates it then to what? He says, in, in the baptismal waters, you are buried in the water because in spiritual unity with Christ, you're what? You're buried. Who gets buried? Right? So his point isn't like you're buried alive. The point is spiritually, you're united with Christ in his death. And baptism pictures you being laid in the grave because you've died with Christ. And what have you died to? You've died to following the sin nature, and the pursuit of earthly things that have no eternal significance. You're tied to these things. And then we are raised. So look again at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also, what? So, I mean, when we baptize people here, we put them under the water of the tank. We just hold them there. No, we, we raised them out because Christ was raised. Resurrection follows death. But here's the means of resurrection. Look at this. We are raised with him through faith, the means by which God grants you new life in Christ isn't through the water, but is through faith. It's one of the reasons we as Baptists don't baptize babies because they don't have faith. And the water symbolizing new life cannot be a good symbol unless they actually have faith. Faith is the means, but what is the anchor of salvation? The power of the working of God. Okay, so when I think of, of trying to help my children come to Christ... If I teach them that salvation can be simplified down to, repeat these words after me and you are saved. How will they know that in salvation, God demands your death? You die with Christ by faith. And the powerful working of God, we experience both death and life. So when we participate with Christ, having 
been raised with him, he speaks of this newness of life. We come to verse 3 of chapter 3. For you have died. And then he says, and your life is hidden with Christ. Now, so, so here's the reality. I, I don't know how best to picture this, but I, I want you to imagine our earthly existence here and Christ on earth. He dies and is raised and is now seated where? In heaven. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He's ruling with God in heaven over us. He's interceding for us. He's pleading with us. He loves us and is anchoring us to salvation forever. Where are we at? I asked this question before. I was setting you up. Where are you at? The Bible says we are with Christ hidden. I mean, I look and I see you all. I think you're here on earth. When God views you, his declaration and salvation is so certain that your legal status is heaven. You are hidden there. We don't see it. We see you today. You see each other, and we say, we're here on the earth. And God says, no, 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 no. The true reality is that my people are already citizens of heaven. They're there. And that the stuff you have going on today is not where you should be thinking you live. This is not your eternal home. This is not what has eternal value. This is not what has eternal significance. My citizenship is heaven. That's why it's hidden. So I want you to imagine the absolute reckless child abuse of knowing you're hidden with Christ. Your child can't see that. And if you don't tell him that, you hate your child. How would you not tell him that the beauty and the reality of where you live is heaven? And let him not know what cannot be seen, what cannot be perceived from a human earthly vision that there is something more and greater that is where you live, where you are hidden with Christ. I love the way he says this phrase in, in verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4. When Christ, who appears? Who is your, what? Who is your life? He is your life. Why is he your life? I mean, he's everything, isn't he, for the believer? Life has no meaning without Jesus Christ for the Christian. He is the center of, of our value system. He is the anchor to what gives us purpose. No Christian who knows Jesus Christ and lives from is floundering without purpose in this life because Christ is his purpose. He is our Lord. Christ is our Savior. Christ who is our King. Christ who is the lover of our soul. Christ who is our intercessor. Christ who is our God. Christ who is our hope. Christ who is our boast and glory. Of course he is our life. He is everything to the believer. And so we teach children the, the context and meaning of life is Christ. This is what Paul says. Come with me to chapter 1. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created and for him. How could we ever let our children not see Christ built them? Christ built them for him. What heavy value and preciousness is anchored to that statement. If your child ever struggles with self-worth, take him here. Christ has made you particularly, individually, preciously, and loves you because he has made you for himself. Your child struggles with image, living on Instagram, Facebook, and the social media of this world, and Snapchatting a way to get 
favor and love and affection and approval by others, they have lost sight of Christ. It will provoke in them a despair. You will never be as pretty as someone else. There's always going to be someone more beautiful than you. There's always going to be someone who's better, smarter, more achieved, more successful, richer, happier than you. And if that is the measure of worth we teach our kids, we are hurting them deeply, maybe eternally. But in this one thing, they have value forever. Jesus Christ built me exactly how he wants me to be for himself. Christ, who is my life. Can you say that? Can your children say that? If all else faded away, if everything else was stripped away, if all of your money was gone, if you couldn't find your family and you were alone in the world but you had Jesus Christ, would he be enough? Would he be enough? Can you say, Christ is my life? Parents, it is your duty to train your children to be more loyal to Jesus than to you. It is your duty to lead them to know that the one life living is the life devoted to Jesus Christ because Christ is life. This is what it means to have a Christ-centered home. We say words like that. And then I feel like when I read sentences like, when Christ who is your life, and it's like, what, what does that mean? You know what that means? That means we have Christ the center of motive and action. Christ is the center of worship and values. And Christ, who is my life, appears. Is he your life? So we come to this final concern, and that is there's this heavenly focus, this heavenly passion. So we look at, at the, just the, the way in which God relates to us as person to person. We look at the position of Christ and remembering that that anchors us so that we participate with him in death to self, life for God, and future glory. If you didn't miss it, at the end of verse 4, we will appear with him in glory. Now, I look at you all and I see some very glorious people. You might look in the mirror and not see much glory. The glory we have now is a dim, weak, ugly, pathetic, rotten, should I keep going? Vomitous, disgusting, maggot-ridden glory, as good as it might be, compared to the glory coming. And what makes us glorious in heaven is we will be like Christ. It's a glory of character. Not a physical beauty. Not that we won't have better beauty, but that is not how we define beauty. Oh, the sweetness of never sinning against someone you care about again. The goodness of knowing with absolute confidence their words will never hurt you or cause harm, but only point you to Christ. The goodness of knowing that all that is done in heaven is sweet and right, productive and good. You will be like him, 1 John 3 says, because you will see him as he is. And so with the glory that Christ has, he makes us glorious like him. When he appears, location, we died with him, We are raised with him. We are currently legally seated with him. And when he appears, then we'll have the consummation of body with legal standing with Christ in glory. So what do we do now? Look with me in verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, do what? Seek things above. Seek these things above. 
The idea of seek is a continual action. The New English translation translates it this way. Keep seeking the things above. It's an act of pursuit. You cannot do this passively. If you are not purposefully pursuing heavenly things, then you are not obedient to this command. You must purposefully seek heavenly things. Well, you say, what are heavenly things? The things of Christ, that's where he's seated. The things of God, that's where he dwells. If you look through the rest of the passage, it's calling us to abandon creaturely comfort, the success of this life. There's a reason that you no longer are angry or filled with malice or say malicious things to people or have coarse words coming out of your mouth. There's a reason you're able to forgive and be gentle and kind. There's a reason you're able to love. Because all of the ways we struggle with those things are anchored to the stuff of this earth. Because no one can threaten the stuff of heaven. If you struggle with anger, you love this earth too much. You struggle with complaining, you love this earth too much. I mean, hear that clearly. As sad as you may be about politics or as happy as you may be about politics, if your anger, complaint, joy, hurt, fear, sorrow, happiness, contentment, satisfaction is anchored to who won in November, you might love this earth too much. Do you love this earth too much? I mean, I got to tell you, this is a real struggle, isn't it? And have you ever had your kids break your stuff? I think it was Zion. He's my little two-year-old, so I'm going to say it to him because accountability is so much less for a two-year-old. But I, I came out, and the nice black paint on my car was covered with muddy hand swirls. You know, so you have all the rocks and the grits being rubbed on the paint of your car. And it's like, oh. You know what? That car will not make it to heaven. But I trust by God's grace, my little baby Zion will. Why would I ever in that moment be willing to express anger or malice? Or you come down to the later one, it talks about husbands not being harsh to their wives. Why would I trade moments of frustration or harshness to a person who's eternal? Because they've jeopardized what is temporary. Because in that moment, I'm not seeking things above. I'm seeking to maintain a decent paint job on my car. But it's not from above. It's temporary, it's fading away, and it should not own my soul. Set your minds, verse 2, on things above. You notice that repeat of above. He's just telling us where Christ is. Listen, if Christ is seated in heaven, and that where you truly live, then start living like you live there. Stop living as though the temporary stuff of this world where our, our bodies are located is actually what we should value. Live and set your affections. Again, the same consistent pattern is here. It's keep seeking and keep setting, which, which is helpful in many ways because I struggle with this, don't you? It's like, oh man, Lord, let me live for heaven today. And something happens, whether it's just regular life, driving to work, all of a sudden thinking about all the stuff I got to do, and heaven's out the window, right? I'm worried about emails and responding to people and, and all sorts of stuff. And I can forget to set your affections or set your, your minds. It speaks of the whole heart of the person. Maybe you could say it this way. Be conformed in your feelings and thinkings. Be shaped be molded so that your deepest desires, your thoughts, and your concerns are about the things of heaven. You cannot get here by spending your day on PlayStation and Xbox. You cannot get here by whittling away your time on TV programs and movies. You cannot get here by being so busy at work you never have time to pray and talk to God. You can never get here by living on social media and making sure everyone knows how tragic your life is or how wonderful it is and not talking to your Savior. It's a, it's a mandate that Christians, by faith, recognize that that is their true place. 
Because this earth owns us if we're not careful. So take your affections, your mind, your heart, and put it over there. And don't get stuck, sucked into the vortex of the stuff you see. Look around the room. Nothing in this room will make it to heaven. You can't see the Spirit. The Spirit's going to make it. But I'm pretty sure we are guaranteed, told clearly, this body's not making it. I'm kind of thankful for that, honestly. I'm looking for an improvement, an upgrade someday. The chairs aren't going to make it. The wood's not going to make it. The glass isn't going to make it. The pages of your Bible aren't going to make it. The truth will, but the pages won't. And yet, this stuff can own us. We think we own it. But we do have a chance. The fibers of your muscles, the thoughts of your mind can be turned to pursue heaven. We can take the investments of this church property and turn them to the mission of heaven. So take the moments with your children and turn their hearts to heaven. Teach your children that there is something better in life than A's and B's and being the best softball player the world has ever seen. There's something more lasting than academic excellence and diplomas, jobs, and a house. And these are the sweet graces of God that should be turned to heaven, not possessed as though they're joys. For this life alone they can be, but they need to be turned to heaven. Set your affections Set your mind, set your heart, and conform it to heaven. And do that with your children. I want to take you back because I think at the end of chapter 2, we see a rebuke that reminds us of home life. And then I want to end with that. Look, look with me um, down in verse 21. This feels like a parent. Don't handle don't taste. Do not touch. Now, now the point is, is there are spiritual things that we say, or, or there are spiritual leaders who will say, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. Now you're holy. And there are parents who feel like they're running around the house telling their kids the same thing. Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If all you do is raise kids who know right, kids who do right, they will have no power to do so in a way that pleases God. They're like laying down train tracks in a good path and putting cars on the train tracks, but there's no engine. And you ask your kids, hey, how come you're not moving down the tracks and there's no power? And you're frustrated with your kids because they're not moving down the tracks because there's no power. And you're wondering how you can't get your kids to obey because honestly, there's no power in just rules to shape your child's heart, to change it and empower it to please the Lord. And this is where the gospel comes in. Has your child died with Christ, been raised with Christ by placing his faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ? But never make your kid a Christian. A bunch of rules will not make you holy. They'll just make you feel like it. Now, I'll tell you what. I have a five-year-old in my home, and I am trying to lay down tracks. Because I hope, I hope that one day he dies with Christ and is raised with Christ and empowered by Christ. And so when I lay down those tracks of the five-year-old, I'm not doing that because I want him to be saved by the tracks, but I want him to know what the character of Christ looks like, so I teach him to say thank you. And then I teach him because Christ gives us all good gifts. So that when the powerful working of Christ enters his life, he knows how to live in a way that pleases God. So just as a parenting insight, train your children to know how to live in a way that pleases God. 
trusting that when God redeems them, they'll have the power to pursue godly character. And don't wait to teach your kids godly character until they trust Christ. Teach them godly character, but teach them that faith in Christ is the means by which the power of God rescues us from us. There is no little engine who could. We are all little engines who can't. God empowers us by calling us and uniting us with Christ and by participating in his death, life, and resurrection power, we can pursue a Christ-centered home and life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for such a sweet passage that reminds us that the hope of giving Christian character to our children, the hope of seeing them worship in sweetness and theological depth with us, the hope that we have that they will enter into life and rebuild other godly homes as they are married, that these hopes are anchored to them participating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that one day when he appears, we with our children and with our spouses and with our sweet friends who gather in this body will appear with him in glory. Father, thank you for this hope. Thank you for reminding us that the ups and downs of this life are ways in which we can leverage the stuff in this world for eternity. And Father, forgive us for loving it too much. Forgive us for making our homes about us. Forgive us for thinking that you've given our children to us, for us. For in fact, we and our children are made by Christ and for Christ. We are built for his glory. We are to be praising and glorifying our King. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to lead our children to do the same. And even now, as we set aside parents to the task of parenting well, and as we pray for these sweet new lives that you've given to us, Father, I pray that you would secure our hearts to the commitment of discipling our children to follow Christ. We pray this for the name and the glory of Jesus on the basis of his work for us. Amen.